Okay, what are we studying? Systematic theology. Which part? Bibliology. It's our last Sunday on bibliology, actually. After this, we're studying theology proper, so the doctrine of God, which will fly through the rest of November, December, and a little bit into January. Then we'll switch topics late January, so you'll have to wait to find out what those are. But you can probably guess if you have a textbook what's coming next. Let's open in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word that it teaches us sound doctrine, that without it we would be really confused. We would be wandering around in darkness. We would be coming up with our own theological conclusions. We'll be stumbling over many stumbling blocks. But you've given us light. You've given us the pure light of Scripture. So help us to know it well, to understand these theological concepts that you teach us there, to be able to talk to others about the truth that we learn and know. And Lord, help us to respect and honor and and love the truth, not to resist it. We pray that you would do this for your name's sake. Amen. So last week, we kind of ended on the different early Bibles. And, And this is, by the way, a topic of God's preservation of Scripture. So how did he preserve Scripture? Can we know that what we have today is the Bible, the true Word of God? How did he preserve it? And we just sort of looked at, after looking at inerrancy, we looked at this idea of preservation. So inerrancy is that there's no errors in the original autographs, the original writings of Scripture. And these writings were copied and written down. And then in about three, 400, we have these codex, which is a book, which is a binding of all the letters together of the New Testament and the Gospels and even the Old Testament. So these are some of the early three big full Bibles. And I say full kind of relatively. Some pieces have fallen out before they were found. So some parts are missing, but the idea is they were originally bound. Some of them, in, most of them in Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. That was what early Christians used because everybody could read Greek. So you got the New Testament. Now you have the Old Testament translation and bind it together. You have a Bible that everyone can read. Sort of like we have our whole Bible in English today. And so we're looking at this idea of preservation, and we came to the Gnostic Gospels and the Pseudepigrapha. So we looked at the Old Testament, the canon, and, and we looked at the false books that were added by the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox. These are called Apocrypha. They're historical books in the sense that they're written in the past and they have some history, but they're often fantastical. They have errors. They were never quoted by Jesus. They're apocrypha. Apocrypha means, you know, secret writings. And they're secret not because no one knew about them, but they just weren't considered scripture. They were secret as in hidden, as in no one really looks at this as scripture. And then later people come along and say, ooh, secret stuff. We've got to get into the secret stuff. You know, something has been hidden from the modern America, and we're going to figure it out. You know, it's a conspiracy theory, and we love conspiracy theories. And so everybody goes and they they dig up these things and they suddenly start to say, well, look, there's all these Christianities. And one eventually, you know, whoever writes the history books is the one who wins kind of the idea. You know, the winners write the history books. Well, that's what liberals have said about Christianity. There's all these early gospel accounts and they were thrown in the trash and they were burned and persecuted the people. And only one rose to the top. And that's what we know today. Well, it's, it's a false narrative. And so when we're considering what should be in the Bible, the canon of Scripture, these should not be in the Bible. These are not additions to your New Testament. Gnosticism was a system of false teachings that existed during the early centuries of Christianity. Its name came from gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge. The Gnostics believed that knowledge was the way to salvation. For this reason, Gnosticism was the way Gnosticism was condemned as false and heretical by several writers of the New Testament. So the Gnostics said, hey, there's a lot of secrets that true, well, they wouldn't even say true. There's a lot of secrets that Christians don't know. And to be a real Christian, to be a true Christian, you need to experience the secret knowledge, the secret gnosis, the the secrets that are not in the New Testament. And so they had extra books that they looked to. And this is Gnosticism. It's a different religion. It's mixing mysticism and paganism with Christianity. So what are these books called? The Gospel of Peter is one of them. The Gospel of Mary. The Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Judas. The Gospel of Philip. The Gospel of Nicodemus. 
the secret gospel of Mark. So you can imagine when these things were discovered that people just went crazy over them. You know, let's study these. Let's interpret these. Let's translate these. And even today, you can walk into Barnes & Noble and find some of these, especially the popular ones like Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas. Right? Everybody wants to read the Gospel of Judas, even though it wasn't written by Judas. And none of these were written by the names associated with them. These were people, false authors later, who used the name of these famous people in the Bible. That's why they're called pseudopigrapha. Pseudo means false. Pigrapha means writings. They are writings by someone who is not the named author. And so these have all kinds of heretical things in them. I don't really recommend spending too much time on them unless you're really dealing with somebody who believes them. Here's one of my professors in seminary in his book, Nathan Busnitz writes, It is possible, of course, that we might find some factual accounts about Jesus outside the biblical Gospels. The Gospels do not claim to be exhaustive biographies of the life of Jesus. In fact, John closes his Gospel by stating, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What the Gospels do claim, he says, however, is that the information they provide is both accurate and sufficient. So that when you read them, you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the Bible is the inspired word of God. The Bible is inerrant. And these other things, even if they had one sentence that was true, doesn't make them the Gospel. It doesn't make them included in the Bible. It doesn't make them the word of God. You can have a, a math book that says 1 plus 1 equals 2. That's true. That doesn't mean we should throw it and insert it into Scripture. A man can get some things right sometimes. So pseudepigraphers were written works ascribed to someone other than the author, usually ascribing authorship to an apostle or even Jesus himself. So they're forgeries. They're forgeries. These forgeries were never part of the Bible. They were not considered Scripture by any church. Even though liberal scholars go crazy for them these days and love them, no one ever considered these Scripture. No one. Not even the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox who like to add extra stuff to their Bible considered these Scripture. Anybody read any of these, by the way? The early church fathers rejected them. So these started coming out in the 200s, and the early church just rejected them. They said, we don't want this false stuff. It'd sort of be like today, you know, Jesus Calling, or some of these books that claim to be Jesus talking to them, and people write it down. And, and the true church needs to reject such things. And they're not scripture. They shouldn't be followed. This woman's not hearing commands from God to, to tell us what to do. And, and these people writing back then weren't either. And so the church threw them in the trash. You know, oh, you got saved. Let's throw these books in the trash that you've been reading. And then, you know, we find trash today buried in the sand. We dig it up, and it's in a jar. And we think, oh, wow, look at these hidden gospels. That's all it was. They're trash heaps. And they find a lot of this, by the way, in, in Egypt because the sand and the dry climate preserves the papyri. And so you throw these things in a, in a jar. Eventually the jar breaks and somebody discovers it. Oh, look at all these early papyri. D.A. Carson writes that Tertullian, Tertullian lives in the 200s AD. He has a blistering, he's blistering against the Asian elder who confesses that he wrote Acts of Paul and Thecla. So this is one of the pseudepigrapha, that, that Paul supposedly wrote this book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And Tertullian knows the guy who wrote it, and he's not very happy about this. So far as the evidence of the fathers go, when they explicitly evaluated a work for its authenticity, canonicity, and pseudonymity, they proved mutually exclusive. So you can't say that this was written by an apostle when the things in it make it untrue, right? It's not authentic. It shouldn't even be in the canon. So maybe, Chris, you should look up Tertullian sometime and see what he had to say about the Acts of Paul and Thecla. So the last question we want to talk about with canonicity, is it closed? Are we done? Do we expect new books to be added? I remember when I was in high school as an unbeliever, there was a TV, made-for-TV movie, where this woman discovers a new epistle of Paul. And she tries to, you know, get it published and, and the academic world won't accept it. And there's people trying to kill her for it because that'll ruin the church if this new letter of Paul is, you know, is brought to light and so on. And, and people would have to add it to their Bibles and that would destroy the publishing industry and so on. 
Well, do we expect that things would be found like that? No. Not that God couldn't do it. God can do however and whatever he chooses. The question is not, what can God do? But what has he chosen to do? And he's chosen to give us his word. It would be illogical to say for 2,000 years that we have everything we need for salvation and sanctification, and then suddenly something would show up next week. Suddenly we need that to be sanctified because it's a new part of Scripture. Is God's word sufficient? If it's sufficient, that means what? It's enough. It's all we need. If it's enough, then why do we need more? If you've eaten enough, you should not eat more, right? If you've been satisfied, if you've been filled, you're not supposed to eat more. It will make you sick. Well, that's kind of like adding books to the Bible that aren't God's word, that we think are God's word. Maybe somebody finds it today. That would make us sick, spiritually speaking. God is not going to do that. He's given us his word. The only things that will be added are some things that will happen in the end times where some prophets come about. You can read Revelation for that. And there's two prophets prophesying in Jerusalem. We don't know what they're going to say. But that's different than adding books to the Bible and Christ is about to come back at that point. So what we don't expect is that somebody's going to add to the Bible by discovering something new or by prophesying today, right? Whenever a charismatic prophesies, if it is the word of God, and if it's binding on me, then you should add it to the Bible, right? If, if Daniel, who's not a charismatic, but let's pretend he was, if he came up to me and said, you know, I have a word from the Lord. You're supposed to go home and eat pizza for lunch. I'm going to say, well, show me in the Bible. He should say, well, it's not in the Bible. It's, it's the word from the Lord. I'm going to say, we well, should add it to the Bible then. If it's binding on me, if I should believe it and accept it. Right now, he can tell me he likes pizza and that's a good idea and all this stuff. But that's not saying it's the word of the Lord. And we're not talking about impressions. We're not talking about the Spirit moving you. Be careful with your language. When you start saying, God told me, the Spirit moved me, be very careful. Usually, you're trying to justify something you want to do that maybe is unwise or against Scripture. And you're saying, no one can argue with me because God told me. You know, no one can argue with me. Ryan, you can't tell me what I said was wrong because God actually spoke to me. Did he speak to you? No, he didn't spek to you. That would be silly. But a lot of people do this. And so we can't add that to the Bible. That's not God's word. That's, that's somebody's thoughts, somebody's ideas, maybe false teaching in a lot of cases. People are saying they're heard from God and it goes against Scripture. By the way, God's not still giving prophecy. That's later on in systematic theology. We'll come to that subject when we get to the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. So God's not going to add more books. He's not going to add prophecy. Does the Bible say anything about that? Well, some have tried to add tradition as the 28th book of the New Testament. We have church tradition. We have all these things over 2,000 years. Or, or your local church has this tradition. But Jesus said about that, By this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So tradition doesn't get added to Scripture. We might have a tradition where here we sit in these chairs and we can break them apart and have meals and we can put them back together. But nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to have chairs or pews or, or a stage. There's an indication of a pulpit in the Ezra and Nehemiah story where Ezra preaches from the pulpit. But it's a tradition. These things are traditions. We don't add them to Scripture. They might change a little bit here and there as time goes on. Some charismatics believe God is giving new revelation. And they say it's equal to Scripture. But they won't add it to the Bible. If it is God's Word, and it's some important for the church, you know, add it to the Bible. Many won't go that far. Some do. Deuteronomy 4.2, this is the first five books coming to a close with Moses. He says, you shall not add to the Word which I'm commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. So don't add to the first five books of the Bible. Now this is going to apply to the whole Bible. Don't add to God's Word is the idea. The word which God commanded you. The word which God gave us. If you do that, God is not going to be happy. Deuteronomy 12, 32. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. So there's always been this idea that people want to add to God's word. They want to put tradition in. They want to put their own laws in. Their own legalism. They want to change scripture. They want to cut things out and add things in. And God warns us over and over throughout the Bible not to do this. Proverbs 3, 6, do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. So Proverbs are general statements. They don't just apply to the to Deuteronomy. They don't just apply to Revelation, which we'll look at in a minute. But all of life is covered 
in the Proverbs. and says, do not add to God's words. He's going to rebuke you. He's going to reprove you. And you're going to be the liar, not God. So here's the very end of the Bible. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away from his part, from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in this book. So that's the very end. That's how the book ends. The last part of the Bible says, don't add to God's word. And it's the last book. Now people say, well, this is just talking about the prophecies in Revelation. But yeah, and it's the last book. And everybody has agreed for centuries, this is the last book of the Bible. So if the last book of the Bible says, don't add anything to that last book, that is a way of saying, don't add anything else to the Bible. There's no other books recognized universally by the true church. And so let's not add to them. Hebrews 1, 2, this is very clear. In these last days, what last days? The days since Christ came. In these last days, uh, God has spoken to us in his son. He used to speak by prophets. He used to speak through Moses, the prophet, and the prophets of the Old Testament. But now he speaks to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And you say, well, Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven. And he didn't write anything. So what does this mean? Don't we trust the apostles? Yeah, the apostles are whose apostles? His apostles. What are they writing down? The words that he gave them. So they're his words. The words that he gave them to write down. The words that he gave them to speak. So if Christ is heir of all things in the Son, and he's the one who speaks to us, do we have the right to add anything else to what he's already said? We do not. John Frame says, For God to add more books to the canon would be like his adding something to the work of Christ. Something that scripture teaches cannot be done. Whatever we need for salvation, whatever we need for sanctification is there in scripture. And God's not going to save something for 2,000 years and then throw it out at us to add to the Bible. Okay, let's talk about this idea of corruption. So, the original autographs, inerrant, there's no error. They're written by the men of God, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, God spoke through them. The Spirit moved them. Okay, what about over the 2,000 years of church history? Have there been corruptions? Have there been mistakes made? And sometimes this is an objection, right? You can't trust your Bible these days. You can only trust the King James Bible, some people will say. Or you can only trust the NIV. Or you can only trust you know, certain translations. My favorite translation or whatever. Right? And, and this translation goes back to these manuscripts. and Yeah, that's important. But we have to be wary of that. And we have to be very careful not to accept this idea that God's word is corrupted. And we cannot trust it. There are some corruptions along the way. That's not God being corrupt. That's man making mistakes in the copying process. And it's kind of funny today, you know. If you make a typo and you, you print it out, or I make a typo and, and misread something in a sermon, everybody understands. You know, that's a typo. But for some reason, when objectors come against you, atheists usually, and they say, oh, look, in the Middle Ages, this manuscript was corrupted. You can't trust the Bible. Now, everybody knows when, when I have a typo, it's a red underline on my software. It says it's a typo, and I miss, I don't look at it sometimes uh, and print, hit print, but when you hear a typo, you know that that's, that sounds off. Yeah, he just messed up. This is not God messing up. This is man messing up. Let's talk about other writings in history, though. We have here some writings of Caesar. All these Latin students study the, the wars of Caesar when they get to advanced Latin. Livy is a history book of the Romans. Plato wrote all of these philosophical works in Greek. Tacitus wrote a history of Rome in Latin. Plenty the Younger wrote in Koine. I think that's in Koine Greek, what was going on in the Roman Empire. Thucydides writes a history of the Peloponnesian War in Greek. Suetonius writes in Latin about the history of his time. Herodotus writes an early history, the first history book really, in Greek. Sophocles, a Greek writer. Catullus, a Latin writer. Euripides, Greek. Demosthenes, Greek. Aristotle, Greek. Aristophanes, a playwright in Greek. And Homer, wrote very early in Greek. Now, we have all these writings that are studied in universities. Some, some classical Christian schools and homeschoolers get into some of these. No one doubts these. I mean, they say, well, we have a couple different manuscripts, and we're not sure when Homer actually lived, but no one doubts that what they're reading 
was what the author wrote. And here they are with all of these copies, right? Look, you have 10 copies of Caesar. And everybody says, this is what Caesar wrote. You have seven copies of, of Plato, the Tetralogies. Seven copies, that's it. Only seven copies that we can find. And these don't actually go back to the original. The earliest we have for Plato, for example, on these Tetralogies is 900 A.D. So they were copied and copied and copied. And the old things fade away, right? The paper eventually degrades or papyrus and even the parchment animal skins. And so the earliest one of Plato we can find is 900. The earliest one of Caesar, for example, is 900 A.D. today and so on. So here we have these copies. Well, here's the New Testament. We have a little fragment that goes back to the first century from the Gospel of John, A.D. 125. That's what's in bold at the bottom there. So probably within 25 years of, of John writing or John writing Revelation, we have maybe First John. Derek would know. Is it John or First John? That little piece that James White's always talking about. It's, it's one of the John, Johannine writings. 25 years after it's written, there's still a little piece left. Probably not his actual one, but one that's been copied a little after John. In total, though, all the pieces of manuscripts out there and full manuscripts and everything total up to be over 24,000. Now, typically you hear the number five to 6,000, but that's the, that's the full manuscripts or close to full manuscripts. If you count every little thing that's been found, every little corner, couple of words on a papyri, then 24,000. It is from the Gospel of John. Okay, yeah. So everybody says, well, we don't have uh, enough copies to be certain. Of the New Testament. But in college, your professor probably did not say, we only have, you know, a few copies of Euripides. So we're going to read it, and it's his words, but no, they don't doubt that. They just they go on and study it and write books and commentaries on it. Oldest manuscripts related to the year of the, the gaps between when they wrote it and the oldest one we have. So 1,500 years between when Aristotle wrote and the oldest versions we have today. Thucydides, you can see over a thousand years. Julius Caesar, a thousand years, and so on. New Testament, we're starting even today to see copies all the way back to 125 AD. We've got a lot in the, in the 200s AD, 300s AD. So they're really close to the originals. They're not the originals. God didn't want the originals to hang around 2,000 years because what would people do today? Have you ever been to, to Israel, for example, or seen some of these sites? What do they do in the in the Holy Land today, what do they do when they go? Christians, Catholics, when they go visit there, they bow down, they worship, they rub their hands on it, they throw their purse on it, and then they drag their purse across stuff, and that's supposed to bless their purse, you know. And I saw some some Christians who went over there and they took pictures, and and someone asked in a, in a church setting, they said, "What what is the purse? There's all these purses on top of the, I think it was in the Church of the Nativity or something like that." And, or maybe it was on the rock of Golgotha or whatever. Anyway, these people think their, their money is going to be blessed. I know it'll multiply if they drag it across where Jesus was. And so people worship things like that. Why was Moses buried in a place where no one would know? Because they would make a, some kind of building out of it or some kind of tomb or some kind of sacrificial place. And God didn't want them to find that. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons. Another one's just, look, they weren't like Joseph Smith said, oh, his was carved in, in gold. No, these were written down on just common everyday paper at the time. Egyptian papyrus. And it degrades over time. It was not a magical sheet of paper that they wrote these on. There it is. I should have gone through my slides a little further there, Derek. P52 dated between 125 and 150 AD. Words from John 18. So not the original, but uh, probably the first copy of the Gospel of John. And then over time, it kind of degraded, and we still have a little piece there. Okay, so the number of manuscripts here, that's the New Testament. There's a, a space in the New Testament bar there because there's such a heart, huge gap. But all these others, you know, people, people might debate whether Aristotle wrote a few little things on the fringe of his writings, if it was somebody else who claimed to be him. But there's not a lot of doubt about what he wrote. So here's 5,000... 300 known ancient Greek manuscript copies, 10,000 early Latin Vulgate manuscripts, 
9,300 other early manuscripts, the Syriac, the Coptic, the Armenian, the Gothic, the Ethiopic. People go and, and get advanced degrees on how to read ancient Syriac because they want to read these early manuscripts, Coptic and so on. That was in Egypt. That's Armenian, the country, not the theological belief system. There's 36,000 quotes from the early church fathers. So even if we didn't have manuscripts, we would have a lot of the Bible just in their sermons and in their books. You know, like today, people quote the Bible and publish it in their books. Well, the early church fathers did the same. Uh, we don't have to have that. And sometimes they have a, it looks like sometimes a, a bad quote or so on. But we have the true word. But just to say, we have this 36,000 verifications in the early church. So I went through these three earlier. These are the oldest complete Bibles. And 300. So a few generations after the apostles, we have a complete Bible. And there's not a lot of debate by 300 about what's in the Bible. And is this really Paul's letter? And did Paul actually write this? And so on. There's just not a lot of debate because it's been recognized for a long, long time that this is Scripture. So Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, those are the three early Bibles. Cost you a lot of money back then if you wanted to copy, but you could get one. So let's talk about these mistakes that supposedly get made. So you have in the, in the top, and this is very simplified, because textual criticism, this is what it's called, to dealing with all the copy mistakes that were made over time. It's called textual criticism. And to study textual criticism, first you need to have about, what do you think, Frank, five, six years of Greek at least. And you have to not only take Greek, but you really need to know the little, uh, what are those things at the bottom called? I'm trying to think, the little scribbles at the bottom and what every little sign means. I forget what they're called now, but th there's this key at the bottom of our Greek New Testaments, if you get one with that. And it tells you where there's a difference in manuscripts. Apparatus, that's what it's called. It's called the apparatus. It's an apparatus that helps these scholars see, look, there's a debate about this verse. Do we go to this manuscript or this manuscript? And they don't tell you what manuscript it is. There's just this little symbol there. And you're supposed to know it or figure out how to look it up to figure out what manuscript it is. And then a lot of these people go on to get their PhDs and then they read all these old manuscripts. So it takes a lot of study and it is a difficult thing. Even in seminary, I think we spend a couple of months on it in a class called New Testament Introduction. And we read a book on it, but it is a, a challenging subject. So you have in the top left, let's say the Gospel of John. And then the Gospel of John needs to be spread around. Well, it's going to take a long time before all of these can be found and then put together. And even today we have computers that can scan these all and then look for differences in the manuscripts. And they're still putting more and more manuscripts in. There's a guy from Dallas Theological Seminary, Dan Wallace. He goes around and he finds, especially the copies of the medieval manuscripts, and he finds them in old castles and monasteries. And when, when somebody discovers them, he gets the call, he goes over, and he brings a scanning team, and they scan them all in, and that compares them to all these others. So not to bore you too much, but you can see what happens here. The original, no errors. So-called mistakes are just additions. Misspellings, usually most of them are small misspellings or grammatical mistakes. And so now we get brought up to today, and let's say we have all of these thousands of manuscripts. They can be sorted through. Typically, we want to look at the oldest because those are closest to the original. And we want to compare those. And so when you have your, your Bible, if it has these little notes at the bottom, early manuscripts say such and such. Early MSS. That's the manuscript abbreviation. And usually those are better. Usually those are better manuscripts. The earlier you can get. So, for example, the Codex Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus. Those are kind of the gold standard. If it's in there, it carries a lot of weight. And if we can find something from the 200s AD, even better. Doesn't mean there wasn't a mistake made in the copying then. But you can imagine, you know, these old scribes, they're sitting there and they're freezing. And their ink is almost frozen. And they've been sitting there all day. And this guy's over there reading out loud the Bible and they're trying to get it down as fast as they can. You can understand how mistakes can be made. It wasn't a mistake in the original. It was a mistake in the copying process. So now we end up with two different sets, for example, here of what's called families of text. We've got the, the Tom family of text and the Mason family of text. And we've got to sort through and see 
which one's more accurate. And sometimes that can differ depending on the books or the, the verses. All right, any questions on that? That's an in-depth subject. So That's a, a quick overview. Okay, so I think today's our last day on bibliology. We need to get to teaching and preaching of the Bible. So what I'm going to do is just pull up here some other things I've done on that. This was done in the men's leadership a few years ago. When it comes to the scripture, it needs to be taught. And if you're talking about a church setting, it needs to be taught by those who can teach, those who are gifted to teach. You can teach the Bible, you should to your children, to others that you evangelize. But to be a biblical teacher, well, that's a requirement for an elder, isn't it? They should be able to teach. There are other people who have the gift of teaching that are not elders. There might be a man in the church who is able to teach, but not qualified to be an elder, doesn't want to be, doesn't desire it. There might be women who have an ability to teach other women and children, but because they are a woman and God has not ordained that women would be pastors and elders, they're not going to be an elder. But here, and all true churches should have elders that meet these requirements, able to teach, and he will be both able to exhort in sound doctrine, that's what systematic theology is, sound doctrine, and to reprove those who contradict sound doctrine. The people who come into the church and try to Start their own little party of those who contradict sound doctrine. False teaching is those, those who contradict are false teachers. So your church leaders, at the least, they have to be able to know the Bible and have the gift of teaching, right? They ought to have to meet those other characteristics as well in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Those are moral characteristics. But this is a special gifting to teach. What does it mean? To teach... Didacticos means skillful in teaching. And it's the term from which we derive our English word didactic. So to be able to take something and then explain it to others. Um, Didactic means designed or intended to teach. Intended to convey instruction and information. It is the first qualification in the elders list related to skill. And the rest of the qualifications in the list, as I said, are related to morality. Uh, There are other occurrences 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. So what is this teaching gift? Now there's a few places in the Bible that it comes up, and it's not just mentioned for elders. Let's look at those now if we're talking about teaching the Bible. And this is a spiritual gift, then we need to understand what it is. Because a lot of people misunderstand the spiritual gifts, and we don't have time to cover them all. But let's look at Romans 12.7. How do we teach sound doctrine. How do we teach theology? Well, from the scriptures. That's what I've been doing since we started this class, right? We, we put up a doctrine, and then I put up all the verses that t- teaches about that doctrine, right? I don't just quote theologians. I might do that later to help us understand a doctrine, but the doctrine has to come from scripture, and that's being taught by teachers. So Romans twelve seven. He's talking about spiritual gifts here. He talks about service. The one who has the gift of service in his serving, he is using that gift. Or he who teaches in his teaching. Or he who exhorts. That's more of the preaching gift there. And his exhortation could also be the person who exhorts like in biblical counseling as well. Teaching is explaining the text. Exhortation is applying it and telling you to do what it says. And correcting you when you don't do what it says. And you probably all met people who could do one or the other, right? Some people are really good at getting you motivated in a biblical sense, in a godly way, to do what the Bible says. And others are really good at explaining it, but there's no, they're just all head knowledge, right? It's not really applying it. A preacher has to do both. He has to teach and exhort. But these are different gifts. And so the gift of teaching, 1 Corinthians 12, 29 Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? The obvious answer is no. Not everybody has this gift. So teachers of the word have a gift. If they're officially recognized, hopefully by the church, they will be. They're teaching. They're teaching in the church. They're using their gift in some way. And then Ephesians 4.11. Where do I get the idea that not all teachers are elders? Well, one of those places, Ephesians 4.11 
he himself, this is Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So it's not the same. Pastors are not just teachers, but there are pastors who are able to teach. So there's a big circle called teachers, and within that, there's some that go on to be pastors. But there are also some teachers who are not pastors, and they're teaching the Bible, and they're teaching and explaining the text. This is to believers. We're not necessarily talking about evangelism here. That's, that's more along the lines of an evangelist. These are those in the church who teach the Bible. Maybe a seminary professor who's not an elder of a church, but he's teaching in the seminary. Maybe a, a, a Bible study person who's, who's teaching a Bible study in the church or outside the church, but it's sanctioned by the church, for example. And so this is the gift of teaching. They are closely related, though, pastor and teacher. So if you ever have a pastor that can't teach, you need to find a new church or help people get the right guy in the office of pastor so that he can teach the Bible. What does it mean? There's a lot of debate about all these spiritual gifts and people make up their own definition. But if you break it down and study it in Scripture, it means the ability to grasp, arrange, and present revealed truth effectively. And in an organized manner so that the recipients have an enhanced understanding of the Scripture under consideration. Emphasis is on explaining the Scriptures. So this comes from a book we have in the bookstore. I think it's called Understanding, Understanding Spiritual Gifts by Dr. What's his name? Thomas. Dr. Thomas. He taught at Masters for years. And so in the appendix in that book, he goes through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. But in one of the, the appendices, he goes through these spiritual gifts and defines them. I think he's right on here. They have to, the person has to grasp it. They have to understand the text. They have to then arrange the material that they've studied and present it and do it effectively. You've heard people try to teach the Bible probably that they're just all over the place. You know, we had this guy, Frank and I knew one time, and he said, you know, I have the gift of teaching. And he knew theology really well. He had been trained in a place that taught theology. And he said, I I have the gift of teaching. I only listen to him teach. I only listen to him preach. And that guy was all over the place. I mean, nothing that came out really made sense. But if you were just to get a copy of his notes, they look pretty sound, pretty good. He could, he could grasp it, I think. He could start to try to arrange it. But when it came to the presentation of it, it just was not organized at all. It came out all jumbled. And that just, that's fine. Doesn't mean he's not a Christian. Doesn't mean he's not going to heaven. It just means that he was not blessed with the gift of teaching. A teacher, this is according to Dr. Thomas, teacher must be able to understand the text, systematize his understanding of it in an appropriate way, communicate it to others in a meaningful manner. The result of his teaching will be a class or a congregation, or an audience that leave his teaching sessions with a better comprehension of this particular part of the Bible than what they had before hearing the lesson. So what I like to hear after preaching or teaching is, you know, that that was really clear. That was really made sense to me for the first time. You know, between the spirit working in my heart and the preacher in the pulpit, I was able to, to come to a fresh understanding of the text that I'd missed before. Those are good things. Whenever people tell me, you know, I don't know what you said, but it sounded great. Or sometimes people will tell preachers, and you were just really passionate up there. I mean, I didn't catch all that you were saying. In other words, some preachers will intentionally cover it up with their passion. They'll get loud and excited. But at the end of the day, you just think, what did I actually learn? You know, I went to church. I listened to a one-hour sermon. The guy was yelling a lot, and he was telling me to do stuff. But I didn't really understand the passage he was preaching. That's not, that's not the gift of teaching. Or maybe he has the gift, but he thinks, you know, yelling and, and not actually explaining the text is what he should be doing. So, yeah, it doesn't mean you have to tell me that it's more clear, but it's kind of a joke with, with preachers when people say, you know, you must be really smart, pastor, because I didn't understand anything you said, but it sounded so good. That's the way of saying you weren't clear in your teaching and preaching. You weren't clear, and somebody's just trying to be nice. This is from the book, our book, Biblical Doctrine. The gift of teaching involves the spirit-endowed ability to interpret and articulate the truth of God's Word clearly. See, it's got to be clear and accurately so that others can understand and learn. Although this gift is a necessary qualification for elders, not reserved exclusively for pastors, many lay people are also given the enablement to place sound instruction to the fellowship of the church. 
throughout the fellowship of the church. So I think this is later, 8.14, yeah, that's going to be later in the spiritual gifts section. But it's good to cover it now. We're going to talk about gifts a lot every semester. It'll come up because it's so misunderstood, the spiritual gifts are. So here's John Piper. This, this teacher, especially an elder, a pastor, is an apt teacher. He's skilled in teaching. He knows biblical doctrine well. He's able to explain it to people. He's astute enough theologically that he can spot serious error and show a person why it is wrong and harmful. Al Mohler, in his book, The Conviction to Lead, says to be human is to communicate, but to be a leader is to communicate constantly, skillfully, intentionally, and strategically. The effective leader communicates so pervasively that it seems second nature and so intentional, intentionally that no strategic opportunity is ever surrendered. So that's just a, a fancy way of saying he needs to communicate clearly when he's teaching. But there's a warning. The Bible has some warnings about teaching. James 3.1, Do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. So the person talking up front may sound like, you know, that, that, that's what I want to be. You know, that's, that's where the real spiritual gifts are being used. No, everybody has spiritual gifts and they're used all over the place. There might be more prominence or attention giving to whoever's preaching or teaching, but there's also stricter judgment. There's also a high standard. You know, if, 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 you're, if you have the gift of giving, then you're to give sacrificially. Everybody should be giving sacrificially, but the people with the gift of giving want to give even more because that's just who they are and what their gift is. Serving, they want to serve. They want to outdo everyone with love and service. But when it comes to teaching, these people are teaching the Word of God. And if somebody teaches the wrong thing, now you have people believing the wrong thing, they could you know, go off and live a hard life not understanding the Bible, not understanding sanctification, thinking they've got to somehow be perfect every day of their life or God doesn't love them. Or an unbeliever might hear the teacher and think, wow, I'm completely not a believer and I need to work for it, for example, if the gospel has been messed up. So, Teachers have to be clear and they have to know what they're saying and not teach falsely. That's my biggest fear right there. And I think most men who teach and preach that I'm going to say something that's not according to the word of God, that I'm going to say something that dishonors God. Uh, you know, after you get over kind of the fear of public speaking, this is the greater fear that all preachers should have. First Corinthians ten twelve. Therefore, let him who think he stands take heed that he does not fall. Someone could be in ministry for years. You got a guy like Francis Chan, he goes to his master's seminary. He has a church just down the highway from master's seminary. It seems to be growing. It's doing well. And then one day he just says he heard a word from God and he's going to go to, I don't know, Asia. And so he leaves his church. And then the next year he says, well, I decided not to go to Asia. I'm going to start a new church movement in San Francisco. And the next thing he's on to something else. Now he's teaching with false teachers. And he says, Benny Hinn is a great man of God. And uh, he just recently spoke at some Catholic thing. And, you know, it seemed like he was going in the right direction. But for the longest time, he was making these slippery slope moves. And now he embraces Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox as brothers in Christ. Second Corinthians ten eighteen, For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. So the Lord appoints teachers and gifts them. While teaching is a necessary, it's a necessity for church leadership, the pastoral epistles explicitly teach that it is forbidden from two categories of people. People who teach unsound doctrine should not be elders, should not be teachers, obviously. And women in general, 1 Timothy 2.12, but I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man. So there's the key phrase, it's over a man, but to remain quiet, meaning in the church, you should not have women preachers. You should not have women pastors. I know there's a lot of debate today about this. There hasn't been for most of church history. But today, churches are sliding away from the Bible. They don't care what the Bible says. It's not because women aren't smart or can't teach. They do teach women. They do teach children. They teach men privately sometimes. Uh, their husbands, for example. But God has ordained that men would lead in the home and in the church. And that's how he set it up. So who are we to argue with God. Okay, let's spend the last few minutes. I want to talk about just kind of what's required if you're going to teach. For example, so let's say you're going to teach a Bible study class. You've got some friends and you want to go through the Gospel of John. 
And you want to do it really well. You want to spend some time each week. I did a, a class about six hours on this a few years ago. It's on our website. If you go to audios, I think it's audio resources, audios, special classes, you'll find how to study and teach the Bible. And I've gone over it with the men and men's leadership a few years ago. But this, is, this was six hours where I went through all the steps that I do or most preachers should do or teachers of the Bible. They're going in depth. I'm not just talking about opening your Bible and reading a passage. But what should you really do if you're going to dig in, if you're going to organize it well and, and bring out the, the nuggets of gold, the jewels in Scripture? So Great Commission tells us we should be teaching others to observe all that Christ commanded. Those who have the gift should be doing a lot of it. To train up future leaders in the church, the elders are training up men who can train up men who can train up men in the future. I'm just going to go quickly through some of these. So Ezra, for example, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and then to practice it as well and then to teach it. So he studied. What does God's word say? And then he put it into practice in his own life. He wasn't a hypocrite. Then he taught it to the people. So study, practice, and teach. The warnings, we've already covered these. You have to believe all the things we just covered in systematic theology. You cannot teach the Word if you think it's man's Word, but not God's Word. You can't teach the Word if you think there's errors in it, because who gets to decide what those errors are? You can't teach the Word if you don't think it has authority over our lives as Christians. You, you cannot. You cannot teach the Word if you don't think it's sufficient. Why are you even teaching if you don't think it's sufficient, right? This is where churches bring in other speakers and other people to add to Scripture. If you don't think it's clear, well, then why should I even believe what you're saying about it, right? If it's not clear, then how do you know you've got the right interpretation? And then if you don't think it's been preserved, then what are you even teaching from, right? I guess this may be the King James only. I mentioned them earlier. Those folks think that it was preserved up until 1611, and then it's been corrupted since then. That's a King James-only church. Not people who use King James, but there's a special kind of folks who think the King James is inspired by God as a translation. So not only did he inspire the original autographs, but he inspired the Septuagint, and he inspired all these manuscripts, and he inspired the translating of the King James. But if you read what they said, the original translators, they had this, what's it called, a introduction to the King James Bible. A lot, of the, a lot of the Bibles today don't have that, but if you go back and find it, they said all that they were trying to do and, and who they were and what manuscripts they were trying to use, and etc. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. Um, so you have to believe these, you have to have these assumptions to teach the Bible. If, if you are wavering on one of these, then you need to get clarity from Scripture and from your, your counselors or elders on this before you go to teach someone else. We looked at that one. Okay, so here's the 15 steps. And you're probably never going to do all these 15 steps, but this is what we have to look at as trained preachers. And some of these you'll skip, right? Textual criticism, translation, unless you know the original languages, you're just going to trust in whatever translation you think is trustworthy. But a lot of these others you're going to use, like genre. Am I in the epistles or am I in the, the prophecy section of Scripture? Grammar and word studies. A teacher and a preacher and a reader of the Bible needs to pay attention to the grammar. Pay attention to the word studies. Today in the sermon, there's one word that speaks of God preparing vessels of wrath for destruction. And it says, having been prepared. It's in the passive. It's still God doing it, but Paul chose to use the passive when he's talking about the vessels of wrath. But when he's talking about the vessels of mercy, those that he elects, he uses an active uh, voice in the verb. That's grammar. Why? Because God is actively doing something to save the elect, but he doesn't have to do anything for the vessels of wrath to go on to wrath. So that's a grammatical thing that a lot of people don't see or don't pull out or don't. And it's, it's there in the English translations. If you slow down and look at it. Word studies, that's where you look up the meaning of a word. So I bring those out in sermons and we do that in Bible studies here. It doesn't mean that the whole Bible study has to be, you know, here's 150 Greek words. And let me tell you all the meanings that I looked up. Right? That's just called a, an exegetical dump, right? We're told in seminary, don't do that. Because a lot of guys who get trained in the languages that masters, they, they want to do that sometimes, right? 
They back up their truck and they load it up with all this stuff. And then they back up the dump truck and dump it all on you. It's all Greek and grammar and boring stuff. It's called an exegetical dump. You should diagram it if you're really trying to get into the, the meaning of the text and explain it. There's a way that we do it called block diagram. Did you cover that in your hermeneutics class? So Frank also did a hermeneutics class more recent than, than mine. He covered a lot of what's on the left side there. And even into probably 1 through 10, right? Your hermeneutics class. And he spent 20 weeks going through that. So if you want more in-depth, look for his class on the website as well. Then you get into the context. Context is extremely important. Anybody who teaches the Bible needs to know the context of the book that they're in. You cannot just jump all around and make texts mean what you want them to mean. Literary context, where am I at in the Bible? What's come before it? What's come after it? You need to look at what other people are saying. Make sure you're not the first person to invent something new that no one's ever seen before. That's usually going to lead to wrong belief. If you have questions, you need to get those answered in the Bible. So that's an interpretive issue. Then you start building up that pyramid that I showed you guys on the first day of this class. So where you, you got your exegesis done. Now you're going to do biblical theology, systematic theology, practical theologies where you actually teach. And that's where you apply it. And then you organize your lesson and deliver it. So I went through that in six hours before. Look that up and also consult Frank's class on hermeneutics. Not saying when you sit down with your child that you're going to go through these 15 steps, right? Sometimes people come to my classes on this and they think, oh man, I'm never going to do this. This is crazy. This is in-depth study. You're going through a book. You're teaching maybe Bible study and so on. So, but you still have to pay attention to the grammar, the word studies, the application and the context, even if you're just reading the Bible to yourself. So, okay, that's it for today. Next week we start theology proper. So try to keep up with the reading. We're going to go really quick through the attributes of God, but I'll, I'll take questions if you have those after class and, and so on in the next few weeks. So Lord, we thank you for today's class that you've helped us to understand how your word is preserved. You've helped us to understand what's required of us to teach the Bible. Let us be faithful in doing that and to always honor you in everything we do, including teaching. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.